Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We know addiction affects thousands of people in our country, but we often don't hear the stories of family members who are struggling to help their loved ones. Today, where we live, we'll hear from a Connecticut mother of two sons. Both have wrestled with substance abuse. She now counsels other families who find themselves dealing with similar situ- situations. One of her sons in recovery will join us to talk about how he's reaching out to other addicts. Coming up, we'll also check in on a bill before the General Assembly to help addicts get the necessary treatment. Have you been personally affected by substance abuse or one of your family members? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. First, federal appeals court judge Neil Gorsuch catapulted onto the national stage after President Trump nominated him to the U.S. Supreme Court Tuesday. Conservatives are applauding the choice, while others lament that the nominee is not a moderate, a moderate like Judge Merrick Garland, Obama's Supreme Court pick, who was refused a confirmation hearing by Senate Republicans. To learn more about Judge Gorsuch, we're joined in studio now by Kevin McMahon. He's professor of political science at Trinity College. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you. So we know Neil Gorsuch is a federal appeals court judge from Colorado. What else can you tell us about his uh, background, both academic and legal? Well, you know, like the other Supreme Court justices, he comes from either Harvard Law School or Yale Law School. So he's he, he chose the, the first, right, Harvard Law School and went to Columbia for his undergrad. Um, but I, I think uh, as opposed to him specifically, he, he sort of fills this role, right? I mean, basically both the Democrats and, and, and Republicans, uh, conservatives, have, if you will, sort of top candidates for these positions. If, if you had a, a President Cruz or another type of Republican, you would have had Gorsuch would have been also on that list, right? So he's a nominee that um, is identified as somebody who's going to be thoroughly conservative, somebody who is similar to the person he's replacing, Antonin Scalia. Uh, you can even call him a son of Scalia. He spoke about Scalia when he was introduced by the president and, and the influence that Scalia had on him as a, as a jurist. So he, he's, he's expected to, you know, to vote in a very conservative way, to read the law uh, like Scalia in an originalist uh, point of view or from framework. And... Um, just like if if it were a Democrat, you would have uh, somebody like Garland who was expected to do uh, more of a liberal a liberal positioning. You mentioned the originalist uh, theory. Um, Justice Scalia right. was very true to that. Explain that to our listeners. The idea there is that you basically you want to read the Constitution, read legislation as it was intended by the framers, right? So if the if the framers wrote. Uh, um, the the be- basic example, if the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law, um, Congress sh- you, you should interpret it in that way, right? You should interpret it as it was originally intended. Now, obviously, um, that's a strict interpretation, and what that typically means is uh, you get a conservative result. Let's hear a little bit of Judge Gorsuch on the night that he was nominated. It is the role of judges to apply, not alter the work of the people's representatives. 
A judge who likes every outcome he reaches is very likely a bad judge, stretching for results he prefers rather than those the law demands. So he speaks to that that idea. Yes, yeah, there he's he's speaking to it. Now, you know, political scientists tend to, to criticize this type of talk, in all honesty. Uh, they tend to view judges as really um, politicians in, another, in a different form, right, and that they are fulfilling the expectations. If Judge Gorsuch um, uh, decides the way he's expected to decide, is he doing it from a liberal, uh, sorry, an originalist point of view or not? Well, it's hard to say, right? Is it is it really sort of this legalese that we hear from judges and, and uh, typically law professors, or is it really about politics? At least on the issues that we, that are most politically salient, you know, whether it's abortion, whether it's free speech issues, um, the political science evidence tends to suggest that, that you know, the judges fulfill their roles. And, and and administrations, both Democrats and Republicans, work very hard at trying to find the type of candidate that they think will stick, you know, to stick to the script, for lack of a better term. There's something in political science called the greenhouse effect, right? So the greenhouse effect is named after uh, Linda Greenhouse, the longtime reporter for the court for the New York Times. And the idea there was that conservative justices tended to, to once they got on the court, tended to move to the left hoping that they would get positive reporting from Lyndall Greenhouse in the New York <laughs> Times, right? So so Republicans have taken that seriously, and probably Judge Justice Blackman was the best example of that, appointed by Richard Nixon to be a conservative, ended up writing uh, the Roe v. Wade decision, which is obviously not a conservative decision. So there's an example of a judge who, who moves from the, from the right to the left. John Paul Stevens, another example, somebody appointed by... Uh, Gerald Ford in 1975 as a conservative when he left the court was the most liberal member of the court. So what's happened certainly since the Reagan administration is this really thorough attempt, a thorough vetting, vetting to try to find the right person. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In studio with me is Kevin McMahon, Trinity College political science professor. We wanted to learn a little bit more about Judge Neil Gorsuch, President Trump's pick uh, as a nominee to the U.S. Supreme Court. If you have a question, you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Um, if we could find out, Kevin, a little bit more about some of um, some of the, the decisions that uh, Judge Gorsuch has uh, ruled on right. um, as a federal appeals court judge, and if it gives us any indication of, um, you know, what his... Right. Uh, what he'll be like if he's uh, confirmed. Sure. I mean, probably the most uh, prominent case, at least recent case, in which he he issued a lower court ruling was the Hobby Lobby case. So this came out of uh, the Obamacare legislation, and the, the question was whether or not um, a privately held corporation, Hobby Lobby, which is a, a like a, a thrift store or um, something like Michael's craft store, craft store. thank you, um, <laughs> Uh, if they could deny contraceptive, contraceptive coverage to their employees, and, and it was a question of somewhat specific to uh, this type of company that was privately held, uh, and the court ruled in favor of Hobby Lobby. Gorsuch had ruled in favor of Hobby Lobby as well in the lower courts, and uh, the, the Supreme Court affirmed that decision. So, you know, so... That is certainly the most prominent example of a decision of why he would be, you know, identified as somebody who who would fill uh, the role as a conservative on the court. 
So he, he has a record of favoring religious rights. When we mm-hmm. look at um, the Supreme Court um, moving forward, what are some of the big issues that we could see Judge Gorsuch um, dealing with if he's confirmed? We Obviously, abortion is one sure. of them. Yeah, well, abortion is certainly the, you know, the the third rail, if you will, um, that this has long been a decision, the road decision from 1973, which has motivated and activated uh, those on the right, pro-life voters. Um, it, they've helped elect a string of Republican presidents from Reagan to the two Bushes to now Donald Trump. Um, and despite the fact that a number of Republican judges uh, have been appointed to the court, um, or conservatives by Republicans, uh, Roe hasn't been struck down. It's been weakened significantly. Uh, It's been uh, more, states can do more to limit abortion, but it hasn't been struck down. Now, Gorsuch's appointment won't necessarily change that. Um, There's two possibilities there. Uh, One, uh, a lot has been made of the fact that Gorsuch um, was a clerk to Anthony Kennedy. Now, Anthony Kennedy has been willing to uh, allow for restrictions on abortion, but has not been willing to overturn the principle that a, a w- that women have a right to terminate an unwanted pregnancy um, in a way that Scalia has. And there's some talk that Gorsuch has a special relationship uh, with Kennedy, that Scalia, for all his uh, combativeness, um, he, he was really a, a cultural warrior, and this didn't really allow him to convince his fellow justices to to join him. Justice Brennan, who was one of, the, one of the leading liberals on the court for many years, used to tell his law clerks that the most important principle for being a justice on the court was what he called the rule of five, right? And the rule of five simply means that it takes five justices for a majority. And Scalia never really learned that lesson, right? He, he often talked with, uh, about um, the, the bad quality from his standpoint of his fellow justices in terms of their opinions and in terms of their thinking. And somebody who is more congenial might have more of an influence on moving somebody like Anthony Kennedy, who's the swing justice, the, the moderate conservative, uh, to his side. So that's so what Gorsuch will do on abortion is certainly expected to shore up that, that fourth vote potentially move Kennedy to 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 the conservative to the very conservative position. And then alternatively, he is forty nine years old, right? The three other conservatives, uh, solid conservatives are in their sixties. And then you have a court that also um, has Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who's very liberal. She's eighty three. Stephen Breyer, who's a Clinton appointee, also very liberal. He's 78, and Kennedy himself, the swing justice, is 80 years old. So if if President Trump has a, an ability to appoint, to replace one of those three, that's when you have, with someone he desires, um, that's when you have a real opportunity to, to overturn Roe versus Wade. And you mentioned the makeup of, of the, the Supreme Court. That speaks to also when there's a lot of debate about what Senate Democrats are going to do. Are they going to filibuster? Are they going to, yeah. because this is a, a conservative replacing a conservative um, vacancy, are they going to let Gorsuch be confirmed and pick their battles for that next time if yeah. Justice Ginsburg or Justice Kennedy, um, you know, if they were to retire? No, it's an excellent point. I mean, part of the reason why Merrick Garland never got an opportunity to even be voted on by the Senate is because he was going he was potentially going to swing the court from 
the from a conservative position to a, to a more at least moderate if not liberal position so the election made a significant difference i mean if hillary clinton was appointing replacing antonin scalia um, whether she went with merrick garland or chose someone else it would be a, a much different court for a generation uh and if so what the, so the senate democrats are are responding to this appointment in a way that speaks to their frustration the f- given the fact that merrick garland um, was appointed basically with a year left in Obama's turn, uh, term, and and he wasn't able to um, secure a seat or even get a vote or even get meetings with most senators. So um, Senate Democrats wanna wanna filibuster, right? They wanna block um, Gorsuch. The problem is that if you look at 2018 and the Senate elections in 2018, there are 10 Democrats up for reelection in states that Donald Trump won. And some of those states, he won by large majorities. Um, he won you know, West Virginia by more than 40%. He won North Dakota by um, 35%. So these Democrats in these states who were going up for reelection in 2018 have to think very seriously about whether they want to uh, play a role in the filibuster in the Senate when their state has been very friendly to Donald Trump. Now, in truth, they, 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 the Democrats or the Republicans need eight Democrats to join them. And if you look at the map, you can, you can see where five would be allowed by Chuck Schumer I've, um, to, to vote for Gorsuch or uh, against the filibuster. But finding eight, it, it, he might be able to, to prevent eight from joining the Republicans. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today, we're looking into the background of Judge uh, Neil Gorsuch, again, the uh, Trump's uh, nominee to the U.S. Supreme Court. He has an interesting uh, background, and we want to bring into the conversation now Emma Green. She's staff writer at The Atlantic, and she recently wrote, Trump picks a bioethicist for the Supreme Court. Emma, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us about a little bit more about Judge Gorsuch and this idea um, he's he's really studied and um, the the whole debate about a physician-assisted suicide. How did that come to be? Well, he, in addition to having a law degree, has a doctorate in philosophy from Oxford, and he wrote a book that was published the same year that he joined the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals called The Future of Assisted Suicide and Euthanasia. And in it, he writes what's essentially a large philosophy paper on the debate surrounding assisted suicide, the current laws that are in place in places like the Netherlands, and ultimately tries to make an argument on secular terms that life is inherently valuable and that, in general, laws shouldn't seek to allow assisted suicide. And so he um, he, make, he looks and looks at the theories behind it and his beliefs of assisted suicide is a, a good or bad thing. Can we glean anything from that research and his views to how he may um, may decide if the abortion question were to come before him? During his exploration of assisted suicide, he spends a lot of time on a 1992 decision by the Supreme Court called Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And this was a decision where the justices finally got to return to the ruling and try to shore it up on a firmer basis. And in fact, one of his former bosses, Anthony Kennedy, wrote part of the decision, and it's sort of seen as one of his signatures. Gorsuch, in his analysis of Planned Parenthood v. Casey, sort of looks at two parts of the decision. One part says, 
well, we should keep Roe because it's the longstanding precedent of the court. And Gorsuch actually acknowledges this and gives it credence. The part of the decision that he sort of dismisses out of hand is a passage that is sometimes called the famed mystery of life passage, when the justices assert that at the heart of liberty, there's this right to define our bodies and our concept of existence. And this is a basis for the right to have an abortion. Gorsuch isn't really convinced by this and ultimately turns around to use that to defend why assisted suicide perhaps shouldn't be a matter of state law. And you mentioned that um, he was a philosopher. What about his religious background? Does that have any um, sway into how he has ruled in the past? Well, he's a Jesuit-educated Episcopalian. He sort of came up in Catholic environments, but now attends an Episcopalian church. The Episcopalian church generally tends to be more progressive, uh, which is an interesting aspect of his background. And, of course, he is the first Protestant to join the court in quite some time. Um, I think, though, it's interesting to look to his arguments in his book, where he's trying not to argue on religious grounds, but rather on secular moral grounds. He really sees a reason and a need need to make these arguments in the public sphere without using explicitly religious language. Um, Given his record, you know, many are wondering, will Judge Gorsuch be truly independent of the executive branch? We know that President Trump is a vocal opponent of abortion and and, um, many in the Republican Party. And what's your take? I think that it's very difficult to judge uh, based on the politics surrounding the Supreme Court nomination, whether or not Gorsuch would ultimately, for example, rule to overturn Roe or rule in any particular direction. One thing I noticed in particular from his book is its measuredness, the fact that he was able and willing to recognize and take on opposing arguments, that he seemed to be very mild and very reasonable in the way that he was working through this issue, and very careful. Um, Ultimately, the impression that I have based on the information that we have in his work and his past writing is that he is a measured jurist who is trying to be independent as much as he can. Um, So we'll have to see what he actually does if he does, in fact, take the bench. Well, I want to thank Emma Green, again, staff writer at The Atlantic, and she wrote an article recently, Trump Picks a Bioethicist for the Supreme Court. Emma, we're going to tweet out that link. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I want to turn back to Kevin McMahon before we go to break. So any question if if Judge Gorsuch will be confirmed? Um, my guess is that he will be confirmed. Uh, as we were talking um, before, there's certainly a possibility that the Democrats could find enough votes to filibuster. But there's also the alternative, as President Trump has advocated yesterday, um, that there's the nuclear option. And the nuclear option basically means that the Senate will change its rules so that you don't you won't need or they won't need 60 votes to confirm Gorsuch. They'll just need 51 or even 50 because Vice President Pence could break the tie. So if push comes to shove, uh, I think Mitch McConnell would prefer not to eliminate the filibuster. But if push comes to shove, he has the he has the ability to do that. And there'll be enough pressure on him to to do it. And and if the nuclear option is pursued, he'll certainly be confirmed. Kevin McMahon is a Trinity College political science professor. We want to thank you for joining us this morning. Coming up on Where We Live, we're going to shift focus now to addiction. After the break, we'll learn about how a Connecticut mother is working to help families struggling with substance abuse. We'll also hear from her son, who's now in recovery. We want to hear from you, too. Tell us how substance abuse has impacted you personally. Did your, is there a family member um, that has struggled with substance abuse? Did your family know where to turn for help? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266, email where we live at WMPR.org.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Donna DeLuca could be your neighbor. The Newtown woman is a mother of two sons and used to be the principal of a Catholic school. Her world changed when she discovered her two boys had become addicted to drugs. She's now the founder of a nonprofit to help families of addicts. Donna DeLuca joins us now in studio. Welcome to the show, Donna. Thank you for having me. So before you tell us about your nonprofit, I wanted to find out about that time in your life when you discovered that your sons um, were um, struggling with substance abuse. Sure. My oldest son um, was really the first who became afflicted. Um, When we discovered that his, I guess, teenage experimentation had really escalated to dabbling with prescription medication and then leading to heroin use. Uh, It was devastating for the family. Um, At that point in time, Matt, my second son, was, you know, four years younger and, you know, completely, you know, oblivious to, you know, what was going on uh, within himself, but really very devastated by his brother's substance use. And so it it created a lot of chaos in the family, um, a lot of, you know, not knowing where to turn. Uh, The toughest thing for us as parents um, would be, you know, that getting up in the morning, um, putting on, you know, your your happy face, your professional uh, demeanor, but then having the absolute chaos um, go on under your roof um, during you know the the evening hours and you know the weekends and and grappling with that as a, a pretty public figure, I was a school administrator, and my oldest son was an IV heroin user, mm-hmm. and that is is just really a complete disconnect when you live in a small suburban town and you are a pretty public figure. Um, and that that's when, you know, I realized I needed help. So this happened uh, long before, um, you know, fortunately over the last few years, there's more awareness about uh, the opioid crisis, um, how, you know, addiction is prevalent, you know, not just in the inner cities, but in the suburbs. But where did you turn for help? Because at that time, I would think the stigma was still pretty strong. The stigma was very strong. And so my reality was my you know, child was a, a an IV heroin user, and I sought help uh, in the way of you know, a kind of a, we wanted a support network, and I found that back then, out of two hundred twenty five self help or you know Al Anon uh, best practice you know meetings and groups that were available in the state of Connecticut at the time. Only four of them were parent-focused. So I did find a a wonderful parent-focused Al-Anon meeting in Darien, Connecticut. But that was about an hour from Newtown. And um, so it was, you know, going, driving an hour, staying for two, uh, coming back home in the next hour. And I said, why aren't we doing something, you know, closer to home? It was um, then that, you know, I, I realized that we can we can do this. Where are the the parents of the you know the young people that my child was was using with? Aren't they in the same kind of despair and and suffering the way I am? And so I, I sought to bring bring that closer to home. Did you feel like people were were judging you? Oh, I did. I you know it it was um, 
only over lots and lots of, of years and um, a lot of work on my part that I was able to get past that stigma. What I know um, now from doing this work for 15 years is that that's what keeps us sick. That's what keeps the family members sick. And, and really, that's what keeps our kids and our loved ones sick is when we think we're the only ones, we think we're being judged. And in reality, um, everyone has a story. Um, it's only recently, and I would say we're making baby steps, that people are more willing to look at this um, substance use disorder as truly the disease that it is and not a, a moral failing. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. That's Donna DeLuca. She's president and co-founder of the CARES Group. She's a Newtown resident. Um, after she was struggling with the substance abuse of her sons, uh, she felt that you know there needs to be more of a network to help families and, and parents um, who are also trying to help their sons and daughters. Um, if her story sounds familiar to you, we want to hear from you. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Now, Donna's here with one of her sons, uh, Matthew DeLuca. Welcome to the show. Matt. Thank you for having me. So we heard your mom um, talking about how your, your older brother um, was struggling with addiction. Um, you were uh, four years younger than him? Yes. So how did that impact you? Well, growing up with a, a addict in the household is difficult on, on the entire family regardless. Um, as a the younger brother um, and kind of, you know, in a situation where or a position where, you know, he was a role model to me. He was, I looked up to him, you know, he was um, a very important person in my life. So to watch him go through that was, was very difficult. And the, the unfortunate part is as a freshman going into Newtown High School, I didn't have the type of outlets to, to really go out and, and to talk about that. And not only did I not have the outlets, but I didn't feel comfortable enough to. I was riddled with the guilt, the embarrassment, the shame, um, and I wasn't even the one that was struggling. So, you know, that, that really put a, it put a secret inside of me. I walked around for the first, you know, part of my high school career with this huge, huge secret. And it made things very difficult. It did. Did that influence your experimentation with drugs? I think... In a way, it, it deterred me from the the stronger drugs at first. Um, I kind of had a mindset and a, and a mentality that as long as I never did heroin, then I would never be as bad as my brother. Um, but that also didn't stop me from experimenting with, with everything else under the sun. Um, and like what? I mean, it starts off with, um, you know, smoking marijuana, drinking alcohol, um, and you think it's, you know, it's fun and games. And at the beginning, at, at the beginning, it is. Um, and then as that escalates and you you kind of well, I guess looking back on that now, I realized that it was so much more than just fun and games. It was me numbing those feelings that were so strong inside of me that I could not. I couldn't really articulate at that point. So what I did was numb it and numbed it over and over and over and over and over again until I was in a position that I was in way over my head. Um, by the end of my high school career, it had escalated into the, the cocaine, the ecstasy, you know, more of the, the party drugs. Like I said, for a long time, 
I stayed clear of opiates because of the fear of, of ending up and, and causing the same type of pain that my brother had caused in the family. Um, but in the end, I believe it was more of a, a curiosity um, that got the best of me. And I remember the night that it happened, and I, and I tried it, and um, I was you know, with friends, with kids that I had hung out with my entire life. We got some pills. We did a line, and that was the first time I feel like in my life I was ever able to exhale. Uh, it felt like I was walking around my entire life holding my breath. And at that moment, I was finally able to to let go, and and I knew at that moment that I had found something that was was gonna be uh, was gonna be a very important part of my life because at that point I felt that it made me whole. So you used uh, drugs as kind of a coping mechanism for other stress and feelings that you had going on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it, especially in the high school um, time and even afterwards, you know, I had a very poor self image. And, um, you know, I, I doubted myself a lot. I, I really didn't like who I was, you know, and, and that was a, a difficult thing for, for anyone to, to deal with, but to deal with at that age, to, you know, look in the mirror and not like what you see is, is tough. You know, it's very, very tough, and it's taken a lot of work um, to be able to get away from that. I'll turn back to your mother again, Donna DeLuca. So now you have not one but two sons that, that have struggled with addiction. You know, when you found that out, how did you how did you cope? Because by then, I would think your support network had started to grow, and you've been reaching out to other families who knew what you were going through. Um, you know, equally devastating. Um, you know, it 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 always took us aback um, to to learn just exactly what Matt has been talking about, that um, our children were really suffering with a, a self-image that was um, lesser than. Um, that's tough for a parent to hear. It's, it's, you know, it was tough for us to hear. So it, it definitely um, threw us for a loop. Matt was on automatic pilot. What happens in what happened in our family and happens in many families is you know you have the family constellation, and when there's someone sick, um, no matter what the the illness, a lot of attention is focused on that individual, and your constellation is out of whack. You know your your mobile that was previously balanced is is completely unbalanced. And so, you know, Matt was just really, a, he was a happy guy. But what we learned afterward is that he, he was, you know, really repressing all of those feelings. Um, he was the victim uh, of his brother's uh, substance use. He was, uh, you know, one of the hallmarks of, of addiction when it gets out of control is the lying, cheating, and stealing. Um, he, he was really a victim. And but, and we know now, so as not to cause the family any more disruption or chaos, he kept all of that to himself. So it was devastating to have not one but but two of my children out of four, really, um, really suffering. I wanted to take a, a quick call. Bill's holding from Marlboro. Bill, you're on the air. Are you uh, there, Bill? Hello. Yes. Hi. Go ahead with your uh, question. Yes, this is Bill from Marlboro. Yes, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, uh, so um, my family has um, suffered 
almost exactly the same circumstances as yours. Uh, we have a son who uh, is addicted to opioids and has been for more than a dozen years. Uh, my wife was a school administrator as well, and so we encountered that whole thing. Um, and uh, But the, the thing that is ironic is that um, now and over the past uh, five years, um, I've uh, uh, become involved with a company that has developed a, a non-addicting opioid. So it is a very potent pain reliever, but it doesn't create the euphoric high uh, that uh, that mu opioids do. And all of the, the, the drugs on the market are mu opioids. Uh, ours is different because it binds to different receptors in the brain. And um, it has none of the side effects like uh, respiratory depression and constipation and death from overdose and so on. So I, I just wanted to I kind of deliver the message that there is hope because uh, I strongly believe that this this drug will uh, pass through the FDA and go to market, and and then hopefully it can replace all of the uh, terribly addicting opioids that are out there. And besides that, it uh, shows potential for being used as an opioid addiction therapy, uh, like methadone and suboxone and so on. But those drugs are in and of themselves addicting, and, and ours is not. So um, there is hope. Well, thank you, Bill, um, for your comment. I wanted to turn back to Matt DeLuca. Um, you're in recovery now. When did you decide it was time to get help? And ex- describe that um, to us. You know, when we hear people in recovery, we're like, okay, great. You know, they're <laughs> finally over it. But that's not, it's not as easy. No, no. Um, I, there was a point in my, I guess, in my using history, um, I, I'd, I'd call it my emotional bottom. I guess, you know, people have different types of bottoms, physical bottoms. And, and towards the, the end of my, my using career, I really found that emotional bottom. And what that means to me is that, you know, I would go to bed every single night thinking about the things that I was doing throughout the day in order to feed my addiction. And I'd be crying myself to sleep, um, promising myself that I wouldn't do what I was doing the next day. And I would wake up in the morning and I would already be on my way to do that without even thinking it, without even it crossing my mind. And that was really scary because for I wanted more than anything to stop. I didn't want to continue to use, but I just didn't know how and I couldn't. And and that was a, a big I'm a very prideful person. And, uh, you know, I feel like if I want to do something, I should be able to do it. And when I couldn't, that was uh, that was a pretty low place to, to be. It was a lonely, dark, scary place. And you know, I went to bed many nights not really caring whether I was going to wake up in the morning. And, and that scared me to the point where I had to ask for help. And I was fortunate um, at the time that, you know, my brother was in a position to be able to, to help me. Um, you know, by the grace of God, he's in recovery as well. And, you know, is, was, was put in a, a situation where it, it was as simple as making a phone call um, and asking for help. And, and I was able to walk up two flights of stairs and knock on a bathroom door and ask my mom and, and say, I can't do this anymore and I need help. And, and I was in a bed, you know, two days later. Um, and my life is, has been amazing since then. Um, and I don't say that, you know, because every single day is perfect and it's rainbows and butterflies and, and nothing ever bad happens. Um, 
I say that because I don't wake up dependent on, on any drugs or alcohol. And that's an amazing thing to me because I didn't see that as a possibility for a long, long time. And, you know, my, my I guess, you know, they, they always say you, you live a life behind your wildest dreams. And, and I can honestly say that's true and only because my dreams have changed drastically. You know, over the past three years, um, you know, my, my dreams have kind of morphed into, you know, being able to, you know, make a change in the world and impact people's lives um, rather than, you know, materialistic and th those types of goals. And one of the reasons we invited you and your mother onto the show is because you've become advocates. You understand uh, what this is like and you're reaching out to people. Uh, Matt, you have a social media campaign that you've, that you've launched. And tell us about that uh, quickly and, and what kind of response you're getting. Uh, yeah, I, I launched uh, about th three weeks ago, maybe a month. Um, it's called Everyone Knows Someone. It's on Facebook and on Instagram. Um, it, it basically, uh, we wanted something to, to help reduce the stigma. And I know that for a long time, that guilt, that shame, that embarrassment, it kept me sick. So I wanted to be able to get out there and tell people stories and, and give people like me, you know, or people that were in a position similar to mine, the ability to see that recovery is possible and that you're not, you know, completely strange for feeling this way and that there's other people out there that have gone through this and have come out on the other side and it's okay to ask for help. So what we do is we, we tell people stories through a series of pictures and videos. Um, like I said, it's still kind of in its infancy stage right now, but please go out and, and check it out. Um, give us feedback. The response so far has been incredible. Um, and, and it's like just kind of a passion project, something I'm really, I'm really excited about. And we'll link to that on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Um, so I wanted to turn back to Donna because, again, you've had this CARES group, this family support group for a number of years now. You know, what's missing? What's missing in our, um, our programs in the state? Are we hear from the, you know, the federal government about, you know, initiatives to help people struggling with addiction, helping community members? But you're talking to people intimately about um, their struggles every day. What what needs to be done to help them that's not there yet? Listening to those who have been affected and their family members. I think in so many of the uh, opioid forums that I've attended in, the, in various locations in the state of Connecticut, um, the the voices of the people who are on the front line are, are not necessarily heard as... Um, loudly as other uh, voices. Um, I think we are trying to put a Band-Aid on the problem um, in really in the country and also, you know, in our individual state. What, where, do, you, what do you mean by Band-Aid? Well, when we look at funding, um, we are looking and seeing mostly, you know, efforts going primarily to um, and, and medically assisted treatment, which is an, an amazing life-saving bridge mm -hmm. to helping people sustain or, or to even enter into long-term mm -hmm. recovery. But it's not the answer as far as we've seen. You know, doing this for so many years, for 15 years, we have found that unless you're getting to the underlying root causes, like Matt was explaining, uh, whatever... It is underlying the substance use, which is in many times a solution to an underlying mental health issue, then you're not really addressing the problem. So to put, um, you know, just the medically assisted treatment, 
in the forefront of the efforts is 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 that Band-Aid that I'm talking about, life-saving, but should only be, in our opinion, a, a bridge to so much more that gets peels back the layers and gets to the underlying causes. We're going to have to leave it there. Donna DeLuca is president and co-founder of the CARES Group Incorporated. She's a Newtown resident. She works with families who have loved ones living with addictions, also love people who've lost their loved ones. And Matthew DeLuca, her son, who is a co-founder of that CARES Group, and also launched a social media campaign called Everyone Knows Someone. We'll link to those again on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Donna and Matthew, thanks so much for coming in. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Coming up, we're going to hear from a Connecticut lawmaker about a bill she's pursuing this legislative session to help residents access proper treatment. How could this bill affect insurers' decisions to pay for certain care for substance abuse? We'll find out more after the break. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We just heard from a Connecticut mother and son who understand addiction firsthand. The opioid crisis in our state and nation has caught the attention of policymakers, including State Representative Brenda Kupchik. She represents the town of Fairfield and is on the phone right now. Representative Kupchik, welcome to the show. Thank you. So um, we're short on time, but I, I'm interested in the bill that you've proposed this session and how you can help families that are struggling with substance abuse. Well, um, actually, uh, listening in on the uh, latter part of that, I have met Donna and her son um, in the many meetings I've hosted across the uh, Fairfield County area on the opiate issues, and they're doing some very amazing work. I just wanted to say that. But as Donna pointed out, we are having a real issue where we're not, um, insurance companies are not covering long-term addiction treatment. And as Donna pointed out, and as many families across our state point out, their family members need a longer treatment to be able to have a real shot at recovery. And it's simply not available to them unless they have the funds of their own to provide it. And that's a real problem for us in the state. And how does your bill hope to solve this? What does it call for? Well, the, uh, the bill, and I've been putting this in for a couple of years now, um, it's an uh, act requiring uh, health insurance coverage for long-term addiction treatment. And the point of it is is to try to get the insurance companies to uh, treat uh, mental health or addiction as the same as they would treat any other disease, um, any physical disease. So, for example, if you have a, uh, a serious illness that requires long-term treatment, a physical illness, they treat you. You get treatment until you're either in remission or you're cured. But with mental issues, mental illness issues, or this case, addiction issues, that is not the same. It's not parity. So many times insurance companies only cover a very small amount of treatment, and then, and then your treatment runs out. So you're, on, you're really basically on the hook for it yourself. And many families in the state just don't have that kind of money to be able to, to provide that long-term treatment that's really the most successful treatment for people who are suffering from addiction. And we've heard that from um, families over the years, but we also hear that there are just not enough places for people to get help. So say someone's finally reached that point where they're willing to get help, they go into detox, but then there's no beds for them, and they end up relapsing. How can the state help them? Well, that's, that's another part of it as well. So Connecticut doesn't really have a whole lot of treatment beds, 
And many times um, families are turned away because they can't get into a treatment facility. Now, there are treatment facilities across the country, and some of them are very, very good. But again, they're quite expensive. And without the insurance coverage, families just don't have that option. Um, you mentioned uh, parity. I, we had done a show just a month or so ago about this new federal law, the Mental Health Reform Act, that calls for greater enforcement of par- parity, meaning that mental health and addiction should be covered in the same way as, as physical health. Um, that federal law is on the books now. Um, why is this particular state law needed? Well, I know that this uh, bill was just recently passed. I think it was in December. Um, and many times when you read language or you read federal law, it doesn't transcribe perfectly down through the states. And I have not seen um, how it's going. You know, I, I, obviously it's a brand new law, so we haven't seen how the impact of it is on the states, particularly here in Connecticut. But um, I'm not sure it will completely cover treatment. I, I don't see that yet. I haven't seen, um, you know, changes to insurance companies. Mm. So, for example, in Connecticut, all we're asking is that in Connecticut, your insurance company treat mental illness and addiction the same way it treats any physical ailment. Mm-hmm. And I don't, think, um, I don't think that will conflict at all with the federal law. If anything, it will complement it. I wanted to bring into the conversation now uh, Damien Fontanella. He's acting health care advocate for the state of Connecticut. Damien, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. So um, you've heard about uh, State Representative Kupchik's bill. Again, she said this is not the first time that she's proposed this. What are some of the hurdles to get insurance companies to want to pay for this long-term care? So for the insurance companies, the calculation is it, when they deny an extended period of, of stay for an individual at these levels of care, the reason that they're usually denying it is because they've made a determination that that level the inpatient setting um, is no longer medically necessary. And that's where the distinction between a lot of these mental health and substance use um, treatments varies from the established protocols and standards on the medical or the surgical side, which is really the the analysis that uh, Representative Kupchik was talking about when she brought up parity. you know, we actually have had a law in the book since 2006, the Federal Mental Health Parity, uh, Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act, which is being uh, enforced nationally, um, and we've Connecticut's been a leader in that. But there's still a lot of work that needs to be done to ensure that these services are provided on par, um, equitably, and in a way that allows individuals to receive the most effective treatment. Um, a big part of the problem is is that there is not a lot of real good data, uh, nationally at least, uh, on the outcomes for many of the various uh, interventions that can be used for for individuals struggling with substance use or mental health um, disorders. And that is what the insurance industry really needs to look for. They they need clear standards and guidance from the professionals as to what is really the most appropriate course of treatment for a given um, condition. And that's something that the OHA office is working on, these standards? Is that something you can work alongside with um, the the state legislature? So we have worked with the legislature um, and and the industry in the past. About three years ago, we had um, some legislation which put into statute some standard set of criteria that should be used 
um, when the insurers measure or make a determination as to whether a, a requested service is in fact medically necessary. Um, so we do have, like for example, the uh, American Society of Addiction Medicine criteria is extremely detailed, very thorough, and we in the legislature um, and many other stakeholders were able to get that codified as the benchmark. Um, insurers don't have to use those, but they have to use something that's at least comparable to that as they measure and evaluate whether someone needs to be where they are. Um, for a longer period of time. I think one of the problems is, is that addiction is so individual. Mental illness can be so individual, and there's so many routes that people kind of travel to get into the situation where they need this level of, of intensive and often long-term care that it's, it's hard to come up with one clear set standard, as it's been explained to me, at least I'm not a professional, <laughs> but it, it, there's so many variations and nuances to just what every individual's experience is going to be like. Mm -hmm. And there's new interventions coming out every day. I mean, there, there's you, you might have heard earlier in the, the, the discussion that there's been a move towards promoting outpatient treatment mm -hmm. as an option. And that's great for some individuals, but not for others. And we have cases every day where we have folks that need longer-term care or we know they're going to relapse. And it's just hard to make the case that that longer duration of care, which has been shown to improve outcomes, is appropriate for that individual. And we're going to have to leave it there, but if people are having difficulties with their insurer, they can reach out to the Healthcare Advocate Office. Uh, Damien Fontanella is Acting Healthcare Advocate for the state of Connecticut. Damien, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Also, State Representative for Fairfield, Brenda Kupchik. She has a bill before the legislature to help families dealing with substance abuse to get long-term treatment. Representative Kupchik, thank you for your time. Thank you. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, and thanks for listening.